Welcome to Risk Watch, a podcast that sheds light on emerging compliance and due diligence issues. I'm your host, Alex Soren. Risk Watch is brought to you by VCheck Global, a business-to-business provider of due diligence and background check investigations with offices in Los Angeles, New York, Washington, D.C., and Boston. To learn more about how VCheck can help solve your due diligence needs, you can visit our website at vcheckglobal.com. In this episode of the podcast, my colleague Rahul Ravi and I spoke with Mike Blankenship, who is a partner in the Houston office of Winston & Strawn and focuses his practice on corporate finance and securities law. We discussed why SPACs continue to gain investor attention and the role of investigative due diligence in mitigating potential risks on the operational company and the SPAC management team. We had a great time speaking with him, and I hope you enjoy the show. Mike, thanks for agreeing to come on today. Thank you for having me. So Mike, if you wouldn't mind, could you give us an overview of your practice area at Winston & Strawn and what kind of clients you represent? Sure. Yeah, I'm a corporate partner here at Winston Strong. I'm uh, actually located in Houston. My practice is capital markets, uh, M&A and private equity. On the capital markets front, and part of this discussion has been large in the last year. I've been quite busy with SPACs on the IPO front, but also on the DSPAC side. And the client ranges from energy type clients to healthcare to technology type clients. So it's a range of them as a capital markets attorney, federal securities lawyer. We see quite a bit of different types of industries out there. And for people who are listening that may not be familiar with SPACs, it'd be helpful if you can break down how a SPAC works and what it is. Yeah, essentially a SPAC is a special purpose acquisition company. It's formed by a group of management uh, with a sponsor, whether it's a VC firm or private equity, or guys and gals that are putting together a team with independent directors to form a company, which under SEC rules is a blank check company. And the purpose of that company is to go out and acquire or combine with a private entity or some other public entity or roll-up that strategy where they're buying several others, but to take it public, essentially. And they'll come out, typically the sponsor will have a promote of 20%. So they'll initially buy the shares, founder shares, $25,000. They'll have 20% after the overallotment or not. If there's no overallotment or the underwriters don't do more, they'll forfeit those additional shares. So it's actually 25%, but then they'll forfeit back to 5%. So really, it's just the purpose of going out, making some public, holding 20% in the way it works. There are some complications around the way it works. There also is part of that. There's people who invest in initials and the SPAC will get a unit, which is comprised of either a warrant, whether it's a half a warrant, a third warrant, fourth, whatever it might be, based on the experience of the company. The warrant really is the risk piece that gives a lot of upside to the management, to anyone that owns it. And those units will break off 52 days later after the IPO. The way that the management and others pay for it through a private placement of warrants and they'll buy in. Because the typical cost of a SPAC is about 3% of the total trust size, which is 2% to the underwriters and then 1% for legal, your DNO insurance, your accounting, and auditor fees. Compared to IPOs, how familiar are the clients usually with the management team of a SPAC versus when, when they're taking a company public through, through IPO? When you're going through an IPO, the management is pretty well known. It's been a company that's been, that's been around hopefully for more than three years, because typically you do need at least two years of financials. And so the management of a SPAC is really what they're selling. They're selling their reputation. So you have to sell their bios. And it's critical that people understand, and it's early on, get background checks and understand what the management looks like in the directors for a SPAC versus 
an IPO, which is very similar, but that kind of been out in the market doing other types of private raises to get to that IPO, that inflection point where they're ready to go public. Part of the reason SPACs right now, it's they're raising $100 million to up to some of the largest $4 billion. So part of it's easy transaction because it's very quick to get to form that SPAC and then go public. It's usually about three months. One month to get it on confidence filed, and then an additional two months to get through any SEC comments, then the roadshow, and then you have a period of 15 days where you have to wait before you can price it. So once you go public, filing the S1, you have to wait 15 days before you can actually price it. Got it. So historically speaking, what are some reasons that investors have been wary of buying shares of companies that went public through a SPAC versus an IPO? Yeah, I think it has to do with where you saw the type of investors in SPACs early on, and then a lot of them didn't always pan out. You had a lot of Chinese-based ones that failed with liquidate, and you don't know where that money is. So you held money for two years, you know, getting T-bills, getting an interest on that, but then you're really not seeing the deals get done. So there was some anxiety and worry about that. Whereas an IPO, you know, we've seen a lot of that activity. First day, big pop. So people, investors are getting more money. And there's more diligence done on the company, essentially, because you are writing up in the S1 about that company. So there's a lot more in the management discussion, a lot more in the financials. There are already PCOB type financials that have been around for at least two years. And there's a real scrutiny around the company to the IPO stage. And it takes a much longer period. I mean, you have a four to six month period as opposed to a three month period. Right. So Rahul, I know on our end, we've seen an uptick of SPACs coming in and the due diligence required to do that. What do you think has been been driving that recently? Generally speaking, we're seeing sort of, in 2020 at least, I can't speak 2019 because SPAC activity did increase. I think it's coming off the heels of a lot of underperforming IPOs. A couple of high profile fail IPOs like Ant Group recently, WeWork, And given where we are now with economic uncertainty, I think SPACs already come in with a baseline investor class, right? They've already raised $100 million to $4 billion that's going to go acquire a company. Whereas an IPO, in a lot of senses, traditionally, an IPO has been a safer, I guess, investment from perspective, because from the investor's perspective, it has backing of institutional investors who, you know, like Mike said, have done a lot of research on the company. There's two years of financials. But right now, I think the trade-off is they're looking for an investment already in hand. And the trade-off is that there's a little bit more opacity in terms of what kind of company are they buying? What's the financials of the company? What are the background of the people in the company that they're looking for? But I think that's what the uptick is. It's economic uncertainty. There's already cash on hand for an investment. And like Mike said, if the investment doesn't go through in a year or two, they're still getting some sort of interest on, return on investment in terms of interest. I mean, if it doesn't go through, the opportunity cost is pretty high, but they're not losing money. I think that's what's driving it. And Mike said something really interesting before is that when you're doing the diligence, you're really betting on the people and their reputation. And I think that's the crucial thing that a lot of our clients are beginning to understand. A lot of the underwriters and the sponsors are beginning to understand that you know the people making the investment are the investment, <laughs> if that makes any sense. And so you want to make sure that they are who they say they are from a professional and, and personal reputation standpoint. That's why we're seeing an uptick in due diligence work on the SPAC end. And I think the economic uncertainty, like I said before, is, is why we're seeing an uptick in SPACs in general, coupled with some high-profile IPO failures. So do you see that trend continuing into 2021? So we've spoken to a couple of underwriting shops that we work with recently, and everyone kind of says yes. <laughs> 
And we can't really discern if it's a hopeful yes or an optimistic data-driven yes. Mike, I mean, you're probably a little more well-positioned to speak on that, but everyone is saying, you know, Q4 into 2021, they don't expect it to stop. But I'm assuming it's been pretty lucrative for a lot of the underwriters and investment banks. That's right. I think we're going to continue to see it through 2020, at least the Q1, Q2. I can tell you at our firm, we have at least eight IPOs that are at some form stage of, of development. So there's a lot going on. And like you said, there's the underwriters, it is becoming lucrative because they're traditional IPOs. Not all of them are going to be on the DoorDash or Airbnb type size IPOs, right? So a lot of these are lucrative. And I think on the back end is really where they're earning that three and a half percent. We do have 180 plus out there looking for transactions, a lot of money, right? 70 65, 70 billion. Numbers always change. I don't know what the real number is because statistics are always kind of changing. But I do think we're going to see a lot more activity trying to grow them as well. Where we've seen a lot of successful ones, the ones that have been repetitive. So they've done uh, SPAC one, two, three, four, you know, very many iterations of SPAC. So those repeat sponsors tend to be a little bit better. It goes back to the diligence of the management. They're a known quantity at that point. Right. And and speaking of the diligence of it, Rahul, you, you touched on it a little bit, but you know, what are the key issues that we're concerned with identifying and what are the consequences of not conducting due diligence? Yeah, I think I kind of categorize it two ways in my head. One are the sort of regulatory requirements. So, you know, when you're filing anything with the government, it's done under the penalty of something, right? If it's false. So we want to make sure that the people that are management or directors in the SPAC are who they say they are essentially. So the first level is identifying, you know, whatever educational claims they have, any licenses that they might have, and any credentials that they have claimed as part of their expertise in whatever industry that the SPAC is looking to invest in, right? The second part of that is looking at their professional reputation and kind of around their work history. So where have they held executive positions in the past? What type of positions were those? And what happened to those companies, you know, good or bad during that time period that they were in that position? So it's really specific to sort of, you know, what kind of roles they've had in the past and looking at the performance of where they were when they were in positions of control, right? So an example I like to give is if we're looking at someone who's traditionally been a CFO and has a finance background, right? Not only are we going to confirm education and if they claim they have an active CPA or CFA, confirm that as well, because you don't want to put that in, in any sort of registration statement without it being true. And so what we'll look at then is where have they been a CFO? One of the examples I like to use is, this is a project that I worked on a while ago, is you know we had a CFO candidate who was working as a CFO of a resort company that built you know timeshare resorts. And he was a candidate for another similar type of company, but with a bigger sort of backing. And so what we found was that during his tenure there, they were setting up a resort complex in Hawaii. And so they were doing it in two phases. And the first phase they undercalculated the HOA fees for the resort. And so on the second half of construction, they had to essentially double the HOA fees. They made a calculated decision. Do we up the resort fees on the first half, which we've already sold and get into a lawsuit, basically breach of contract? Or do we up the HOA's fees on the second half and maybe get sued for detrimental reliance or something like that? We couldn't really draw a direct line from this subject to that mess up, but he was CFO of the company. And so there's an element of buck stops there. And our job isn't to scuttle a deal or get someone taken off an executive board. Our job is to give our client the best view of what's out there in the public record. And it was out there. And so, you know, they had to go back, they read the report and they ask questions. What happened? And I think that's where we add value. 
we don't want to say he was responsible for it. We never said he was responsible for it. We just said that this happened when he was there. And I think those are the types of issues that you need to ask, especially when you're, you know, making a bet on someone's reputation professionally. And so that's, I think, the most important part of it, making sure that their management competencies are there and there's nothing in the public record that would bring into question those competencies, right? Because if it was out there and you didn't find it or didn't look, and then something happens down the road after SPAC merges or, you know, they take over in an executive position then investors are going to ask, did you know that this person is, has a propensity to do these kind of things? Or something like, did you know that they fostered a very negative type of corporate culture? And what, why are these lawsuits happening? Right? So once a suit gets filed by shareholders, then everything comes out of the closet. So you want to know what's in that closet before that potentially happens. Mike, how much of that resonates with the risks that you all need to identify for your clients when initiating diligence on a SPAC and its management team? I mean, I think that's, very critical to understand, make sure what they're saying is being truthfully told, notwithstanding they have insurance possibly, but fraud is definitely an exclusion. You don't, you want to make sure that these guys are the real deal. As Raul was pointing out, if you're claiming to be a CFO of a previous company, you definitely want to know that that person actually was. And so, you know, to the extent we do diligence, legal diligence for folks, you know, we also want to make sure those contracts are valid and everything else those guys can enter into. So I think it's important, probably one of the more important pieces as we're seeing some of the recent litigation and, and SPACs around accounting and other issues, which goes to the question of, you know, were the people acting in good faith that were part of the manager team on both the SPAC, but also the target. So definitely want to, that's critical. Right. Do you have any showstoppers from, from the past that come to mind whenever you've been working on these deals? You know, I think a lot of them just really comes down to accounting more than the people, the management, the diligence on management. So if there's some issue around that, that's usually a showstopper if it's a major issue. But we haven't seen as many deals come through just yet. And I think, we're, you know, setting up for 2021, you're going to have a lot more of these that people are really going to need to diligence question because, you know, you have 200 million and then you need three X of that. So they're going to have to raise money through a private placement. So you have even more money going toward, toward these guys and plus some equity rollover. So these large valuations, you really have to understand what you're doing on the back end. You know, if somebody's telling you in three years, you're going to have X amount. You need a real basis for that. And you need to make sure that people are selling are, are the real deal. Whether you're looking at a SPAC or an IPO, from your experience, what's the spectrum of a client's tolerance for risk or adverse issues that could come up in the course of, of diligence? Oftentimes when they're already aware of, of adverse things that are out there, whether it's past litigation or negative media, what's the spectrum of risk that you've seen? Yeah, I think you have some that can get a little gun shy based on sort of contractual, what the company actually has done and what contracts they have to ones that just may not trust the actors that are part of that transaction. And I, and I have seen that where the CFO said he had went to some college and they found out that he didn't go there. So they had to kick him off before. That actually has happened. <laughs> and it is important to verify that. But I think from a risk tolerance, it really does come down to understanding the value of the company, what contracts, and notwithstanding what you said, the litigation risks that are maybe out there. Some of that's mitigated through indemnifying or insurance. Rahul, on on our end, what have you seen in terms of a client's tolerance for risk and 
what steps do we take, like you said, not to be deal killers, but to provide more color and context to any adverse things that may come up? Yeah, I think in my experience, I think there haven't been many times where we're aware that a deal was killed because of something that we reported. And when it has been, a lot of it, it's been, like Mike said, education. If we couldn't confirm a degree and they couldn't provide a transcript, I think our clients do as much as they can to follow up on stuff that we report on. A couple of times there's been small criminal convictions that maybe the person hasn't disclosed to the underwriter or counsel that comes back. And then, you know, I think sometimes the nature of the criminal conviction does play a part in it, but I think it's more so the lack of integrity or the fact that it wasn't disclosed by the person plays a bigger role than anything else. But I think the report, the products that we provide are meant to give our clients more insight to ask better questions when they're looking to, you know, invest in a company, do an M&A or sponsor a SPAC or IPO. And I think that's what we focus on. We also try not to settle on, you know, one source for adverse info, right? One of the things that having done this for almost 10 years now, you're looking at the total, you know, multiplication of just types of sources on the internet, like blogs and Glassdoor. Clients come back and say, oh, like, why weren't we aware of these Glassdoor reviews? Well, it's like, it's a Glassdoor review. It's not a New York Times article or it's not a trusted industry source. And we're assuming that you found that. We could put a negative Glassdoor review. You know, it's like four stars and the CEO has one and a half or two. That doesn't really mean anything. And so we want to provide corroboration and confirmation so that that information is just the best type of information, right? Not just something that we found. Yeah. You know, Mike, whenever you do get these kind of reports, you know, what are things that are definitely not helpful versus the things that are helpful? Yeah, I think it's helpful to really some of the verification that comes out, like uh, Raul was pointing out, make sure there's nothing in the background. I do think by industry, I've actually seen that as well, where there's a DUI charge on somebody and they didn't report it back maybe 20 years before or something. So people, you lose trust in people. So I think part of the reports that are verified, the accuracy of what's said, and then clearly on the other side is omissions and what those omissions look like. So if, if just becoming aware of both sides, verification plus omissions. When you're working with sponsors on this, how closely do you pay attention to possible related party transactions? So one of the things we like to do is, even if we don't know random LLC that this person might be a member of does, we do report it. Has that ever raised a question or would that raise a question to the subject of the report as to, you know, what is this LLC and what does it do? Yeah, I think you have, if there's a spider web of, related party transactions or relationships, you do have to question whether or not what they're doing here. Are they doing it just to use that money to fund some other related party or they're really doing it because they do think that some way down the road, maybe they will have that transaction. But so you want to make sure the ownership structure is not some intricate web, not just from tax perspective, but also they're just putting shells together for some reason, which we all know historically a lot of large companies have done and gotten caught and then go under and it becomes a huge problem for the economy. Before you guys get started with this, do you have your clients go to the management team and say, you guys need to disclose everything that's out there, fill out these forms, you know, anything that may be in your past, don't, don't forget about it. Or do you just kind of wait and see what comes up? We have DNO questionnaires that they fill out. And also our firm, if it's not somebody we know and they came to us, we do a background check abroad, not I'm surprised you guys, but we do a, a, a check. And then, but we do have a DNO questionnaire where we ask a series of questions required either by the exchange or through SEC requirements. Well, um, look, I want to thank both you guys for taking the time today. And I'm sure this is going to be really helpful for a lot of professionals in our space. Thanks again for joining and have a great weekend. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot, Alex.